welcome to the Lutheran History Podcast, where we examine over 500 years of Lutheran history. Today, the tables are going to be turned once again, where we have a special guest host, uh, Dr. Timothy Grunmeyer from Martin Luther College. He's going to be interviewing me on an upcoming article. Well, thanks, Ben, uh, for having me on again. I'm looking forward to discussing this paper with you. Uh, the title of it is A Cause of Distress, the Evangelical Lutheran Synod of the West. Uh, it's a fascinating paper, and it's going to be published, as I understand it, in the upcoming issue of the Concordia Historical Institute Quarterly, which hopefully will be in print by the time this podcast is posted. So uh, let's get started. Um, I think the most basic question to ask at the beginning is, what was the Evangelical Lutheran Synod of the West? Yeah, let's get our, our bearings here. That, that synod existed for only 12 years. And for anyone who studies 19th century uh, Lutheranism, you almost give up in despair of keeping all the synods straight. So maybe why, why worry about this one? Um, it's interesting for a couple of reasons. You know, you can look at its name. It's the Evangelical Lutheran Synod of the West. And that's a pretty uh, broad geographic area. It was founded at least the preliminary meeting was in 1834 uh, in Kentucky and Tennessee is where the guys started to meet for this. And when they meant the West, it is the old idea of the West. We have to remember this is before the Mexican-American War. Uh, so the United States does not own California or even Texas yet or anything in that part of the country. Like the, the America really stops uh, realistically speaking, in the Mississippi Valley. That's like really as far west as you're really going to be getting it and considering it America. So they basically uh, saw themselves as the Lutheran Synod for really the Ohio and the Mississippi River Valleys. So Tennessee, Kentucky, parts of Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, and Missouri. Those are the states that they wanted um, to operate in. It's really just a group of four or five guys who are Lutheran, who happen to be in those areas. And they said we should join together for a synod. There are obvious benefits to having a synod. Um, part of their function as pastors is to examine new candidates for the, the pastoral ministry. That's how they did it in those days. Um, most often they had the pastors examine um, a seminary student or someone who is presenting themselves as I'm trained enough to be a pastor. Uh, they were the ones who uh, made sure that someone could serve as a pastor in their area. They noticed, it was quite obvious to them, as hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Americans are moving west across the Appalachians, uh, dozens and dozens of Lutheran settlements and congregations are being formed, or at least there's a potential for them, and there's no way to supply them with pastors. So they said, we want to make sure the Lutheran people are being served with the means of grace by uh, reputable Lutheran pastors. No one else is doing it yet. All right, so uh, Ben, could you tell us about some of the key personalities in this synod, the Evangelical Lutheran Synod of the West, from its founding through its uh, brief brief run of twelve years? Because uh, I think this shapes a lot of what you're doing in the paper. Yeah, so the people themselves, for the most part, aren't especially famous, or they don't really have a huge impact on the history of Lutheranism in and of themselves. But the kind of people they were uh, just kind of gets us uh, a ground's eye, uh, firsthand view of what Lutheranism looked like 
for what we today call the Midwest at, when the Midwest was first being founded? What, what did people find in the Lutheran church? What kind of pastors did they have? Uh, and some of these men uh, had a lot of influence, at least locally, just based on their personality. They were the only guy there. Uh, and if they showed up at a, a synod convention or a synod meeting, and they had the, the biggest opinion that they could really shape policy in, in ways that we wouldn't expect in our larger synods that we are used to today. So the first example I have, um, he was at the original meeting, uh, founding meeting in 1834. It's Jacob Kriegler. He was born in Culpeper, Virginia in 1776. He had a farming background. He served in the War of 1812. And somewhat unusually, uh, for what we typically expect for pastors, he wasn't until he was 41 that he became a theological student. Uh, he was examined and licensed by the Pennsylvania Ministerium in 1819, and kind of une uneventful for 15 years or so, he served uh, a church in Pennsylvania, and he helped organize a, a new synod, the Synod of West Pennsylvania in 1826, and we're not going to get into that today, but that kind of tells you a bit where his his outlook was a little bit different from uh, the older, more traditional, conservative, um, standard Pennsylvania Synod. Uh, he moved west at some point uh, to serve a group of people. He became the pastor of Hopeful Church in Boone County, Kentucky, and he was in Louisville for the founding of the Synod, as I mentioned, the official founding in 1834. There was a 1830, or 1835 was the founding, 1834 was kind of the preliminary meeting. Another guy that we hear a bit about uh, throughout the brief history of the Synod of the West is Daniel Scherer. He was born in North Carolina in 1790. At, uh, in his early 20s, he began studying for the public ministry under his brother, uh, Jacob Scherer. This is typical for the time. This is before Gettysburg Lutheran Seminary is founded, the first kind of mainstream uh, opportunity for Lutheran pastors to be uh, get a formal education in the United States. Most people, if they wanted to be a pastor in America, didn't travel to Europe uh, to get a university education. They had the homeschool approach, uh, which explains a lot uh, about a lot of things. Uh, but a contemporary of Shaver, who was a, of a younger generation, Francis Springer, uh, wrote of Shaver and his, uh, his group of people that they were, quote, they were very poorly supplied with means of instruction, but grace and native vigor of mind were the best substitutes. So they had to be hardworking, uh, driven individuals. Uh, they had to be good men, basically. Uh, and that really fits into the, the West of in the early American Republic. You had to be a self-made man, self-taught, hardworking, and, and tough. Uh, formal education wasn't deemed as necessary uh, to be a pastor, as long as they knew the basics and had firm belief in, in their faith. Uh, that was good. Yeah. So, and it it's interesting. I, I noticed this as, as we've been talking here that uh, a lot of these founding pastors of the Synod of the West had a Southern background or a Southern connection. Um, like the first you mentioned, and then also even um, William Jenkins um, and even Abraham Reck had, had a, at least a brief period in, in Virginia too. So anyway, I'll let you talk more about some of these other guys. Yeah, well, I don't, I don't know what, what to make of the Southern connection. It's just that, you know, the, the West, westward expansion was largely driven by Southern people, um, just as much as it was in the North. Um, but it, it basically, if you came from one East Coast state, you just hopped over to the, the one directly West was at least the typical pattern for a while. 
um, people from Connecticut and New York and Pennsylvania all kind of funneled through Ohio. It kind of was a bottleneck there. Um, so we see some of that, but Kentucky and Tennessee were some of the earlier strong points of Lutheranism in the Midwest, which we don't typically think of those states as being uh, hotbeds of Lutheranism. But in the 1830s, it was, you know, sky was the limits. Who, you, they, were, they were forming reality and patterns of generations to come, which was- Yeah, and even, you know, even uh, this often gets overlooked, I think, but the parts of like Southern Indiana and Southern Illinois, these were heavily settled by uh, migrants from Southern states, um, even though that, that they eventually being on the other side of the Ohio River, um, become, you know, part of the, uh, what, well, eventually becomes the North in the, in the civil war. Um, yeah. so the, but there's very much a Southern element to, you know, some of the Southern parts of these Midwestern states we yeah. often think of West. Yeah, they call them like the butternuts or, or yeah, something yeah. like that. And, you know, I think we are kind of stuck with viewing things through a post-Civil War lens, you know, slave yeah. state, free state, north and south, whose side were you on in the Civil War? Um, there, That wasn't so much the divide back then as as was the east versus the west. And we'll, we'll talk oh, about that, I think, yeah. in, a, in a little bit. But these men are definitely making that transition. They, they probably wouldn't see themselves as northerners or southerners, but you can see in their synod's name. We're the synod of yeah. Not the West, or not the South, but the West, even yeah. though they were what we would consider primarily Southern uh, Americans. Um, now, Scherer, for example, he was able to speak in both English and German, which was handy because uh, you have a large pre-existing German-American population um, already at the time of American independence and in the days of the early Republic, but it wasn't, it wasn't absolutely necessary. Um, do you, most people were at least bilingual. If you didn't know German and you were a Lutheran pastor, well, okay, we can make that work. That's that's one change we'll see um, yeah. coming up in the future, though. As being is there any? Uh, oh, sorry, are there any more of these kind of important personalities that you'd like to highlight? Uh, yeah, you mentioned briefly William Jenkins. I'll, I'll just mention he was another guy who, well was from the North Carolina Synod who moved east to Tennessee. Uh, he gave a report once to his parent synod, the, the North Carolina Synod isn't exactly the, the parent synod of the Synod of the West, but you can see there are a lot of direct connections between that synod, uh, at least in the individuals. He wrote back to them once, uh, just showing kind of a typical uh, work year. He said, I traveled 3000 miles on horseback, preached 175 times, baptized 84 children, 14 adults, and admitted to church membership 34 persons and had eight funerals. And those kind of statistics show this is definitely a whole mission, uh, just a kind of a missionary kind of mindset. But but even then, a, a pastor in a mission setting today wouldn't have as difficult time with transportation. Uh, not only was it on horseback, okay, that, that stinks, you know, from our modern uh, comfort level, um, but also just the infrastructure back then. You know, they didn't have roads or bridges. Um, there is no way to, you know, they didn't have ditches even, so you can have flooded roads and, and mud and ice. And just uh, another missionary of the time mentioned, he almost died several times just spending one year in this part of the country, just trying to move from point A to point B. So it was, you're putting your life at risk, basically, by being a, a missionary pastor back then. But pretty much everyone else put their lives at risk doing their everyday job too. So I thought that was interesting, just the, the amount of work um, it took to be a, a pastor in the Senate of the West. Uh, another 
figure who maybe is a little more on the, the intellectual side, uh, or at least interesting as far as his theology is concerned, is a man named Abraham Breck. He gets a little more note um, from contemporaries. He was considered an American Lutheran. He was a big supporter of the General Synod, something we've talked about a bit on the show before. Um, he was also homeschooled, but um, he was also a little more educated. He was personal friends, uh, according to some, uh, with guys like Benjamin Kurtz and Samuel Simon Schmucker. So he shared his his views. He's a bit of an, an enigma as far as his Lutheran views are concerned. He was a supporter of those new measures, so trying to adopt the Second Great Awakening uh, or adapt it to Lutheranism. He claimed to be the first Lutheran pastor to ever hold a revival. I don't know if that's true, but that's interesting that that's a claim that he was willing to make. Um, some of his parishioners, this was back east before he came west, accused him of being a Methodist, quote, and a fanatic because of that, um, holding a revival. Um, but he had enough support uh, to campaign about that. But it's also interesting that although he did a lot of stuff we would consider un-Lutheran un today or non-Lutheran, he was a big fan of, a personal fan of Luther, he said, and also he loved Luther's catechism. This was typical for, for the day. Um, what people who we maybe wouldn't consider to be confessional Lutherans at all still really liked Luther's catechism. They really liked that uh, education um, of children was an important thing. Um, he's also credited with using the Augsburg Confession to uh, correct someone who had become a universalist who had a Lutheran background. He said, well, don't you know the Augsburg Confession? We should turn it around. Um, so he was willing to use the Lutheran Confessions maybe with Lutherans. But then when he was the new guy in the scene, being the missionary pastor, uh, someone asked him, so what new sect, what new creed are you bringing into town? Because uh, this is the day when it seems like everyone has their own brand new religion that they're founding. Um, he answered with a very typical um, populist American religion response. He said, the Bible is our creed book. He didn't mention any of the Lutheran confessions. He just said, the Bible is our creed book, which is what we would view as sola scriptura today. But there's a whole nother way of viewing that back um, in those yeah. days too. Definitely. And th there's another guy that jumped out to me as really interesting, just a very unique background in American Lutheranism in the 19th century. It's uh, John Jacob Lemanowski. Yeah. Is that correct? I think I haven't heard it pronounced by anyone else, but that's how I would pronounce it too. Yeah. Yeah. He's definitely, he, he does not fit the pattern of these early leaders. For one thing, he's foreign born. Um, but his background is just, if it's true, I, I, I only half believe it because it's, it's so amazing what he claims about himself. Um, but everyone else seems to believe him. There was one time someone tried to discredit him and I think the rest of the, the town like threw the, the critic out. Um, but John Jacob Lemanowski uh, was supposedly born in or around Warsaw in modern day Poland. Uh, at that time, it was part of the kingdom of Prussia. Uh, he had some Jewish ancestry, according to some people, um, but he converted to Christianity in the university. Um, but then during the time of the French Revolution in the 1790s, he went to, to France, a little hazy on the timeline there. And he joined the French army, which first the Republican army, then part of Napoleon Bonaparte's imperial army. Um, and there's an anecdote where supposedly as a Protestant, he, he just said Protestant. So I don't know, was it Lutheran? Was it Reformed? Uh, there wasn't quite the Prussian Union yet. So I, I don't know what he meant. Obviously, he later associated as a Lutheran later in life. Um, but the Emperor Napoleon 
once asked him why he was not kneeling down for a Roman Catholic religious procession. And apparently he said to Napoleon himself, I cannot, I am a Protestant. So that's an interesting story. By his own count, he fought in over 200 battles or engagements throughout the Napoleonic War and was wounded 14 times at the famous Battle of Austerlitz. Uh, he claimed he received a severe sword wound near his mouth. And uh, I'm going to use his picture as our episode thumbnail. You can look at his picture. There's undeniably a large scar on his face. Don't know if it's from a, a sword in battle or he got it some other way. And that's just a good story he's telling. I, I honestly don't know. It seems too much to believe. Um, he also claimed to have survived the famous 1812 retreat from Moscow, living on rotten horse meat for 37 days. He supposedly was on a Marshal Ney's staff at the Battle of Waterloo. Um, and then he escaped, uh, according to one guy, with the classic blankets into a rope out of the prison window uh, when he was going to be executed for going against the, the French monarchy. And then he sailed to New York city. So it seems like if anything famous happened in Europe during 25 years, he was there and he played a role in it. Um, at this time, you also have in Western America, especially those, the, the lost uh, Dauphin, uh, the, the, the lost Prince of France, you get a lot of imposters claiming they're either French royalty or they were Napoleon's best friend or something like that. So just knowing the historical context, I'm kind of questioning uh, whether or not this guy really is who he says he is and really did all this stuff. I tried just to Google search in like Napoleonic histories and he didn't really show up. So you would think someone who's done this much stuff would show up in, in some broader history, but I'm not a Napoleonic scholar by any means. But anyway, this, this guy with all this military experience um, suddenly for some reason, and it's not really explained, wanted to be a Lutheran pastor in the West. And he was, okay. and, and his track record in the Synod leaves no complaints for decades. In fact, we see him being that tough guy, traveling from town to town, preaching from town to town. So he really fit in uh, with the other guys in the Senate, even though he had a very unique, uh, very different background, whether his claims were, were true or not. Interesting. And I, I guess there's one other person we have to bring up because I think your the article that you wrote kind of turns on his entry into the, into the Synod. Uh, and that's someone you're quite uh, familiar with, uh, Friedrich Vinniken. Yeah. Uh, you want to say a little bit about him? Yeah. So he comes to America in 1838. So, you know, three or four years after the Senate is founded, he kind of stumbles his way into uh, being a missionary for the Pennsylvania Ministerium. It just so happens uh, that they got a letter from the Fort Wayne congregation saying our pastor has died suddenly. He was a young man, uh, just a year older than Winnikin. Um, and they need a guy. Uh, why don't you? Well, they didn't really send him there, actually. They sent him out as a missionary, but he found the congregation without the pastor. Then the congregation asked him to stick around, and he got permission to do so. Um, so he was in Fort Wayne, and then there's the congregation in Friedheim. So he still continued his circuit. But since Hoover, his predecessor, was part of the Synod of the West, uh, he joined the Synod without ever meeting in person any other pastor in the synod or going to any of its conventions, which is kind of odd. But basically, I'm in your your turf. My congregation uh, suggested I join your synod, so I'll, I'll join it. Um, but uh, what we, we notice coming up is Winnikin represents that German 
element in the Senate of the West and not just the German-American element that's comfortable speaking English and German, the, the German immigrant wave, which is growing and growing and growing. And we see this throughout the, the Senate history in the minutes. Um, we see saying, well, in this part of Indiana, there are four towns that could serve German-only congregations. We have other pastors in the Senate of the West saying, um, I can't work with these people. I don't speak German and they don't speak English. And then we see requests from other parts of the, the synod saying, um, you're only printing the minutes of your synod in English. You said you're going to do it in German and English. Why aren't you doing that? Um, and we notice this response of the American Lutherans are really mostly only comfortable working in English. And they also have this mindset, um, we need to Americanize these immigrants, if we're going to be an American Lutheran church body, they have to eventually learn how to be American. They don't really force it. They, they are willing to work with um, individuals and, and their beliefs. But we see this disconnect of um, it's a cause of distress is what I, what I say for Winnikin, because he sees the needs of the German immigrant community is not being met. And in fact, he goes back to Europe after a couple of years and goes on this huge, very important tour where he's saying we need pastors for these thousands and thousands of German Lutherans who aren't being served. And some of them are losing their faith. Some of them are waiting for years and nothing's happening. Others are joining like the Methodists and other groups, which is harmful to their faith because of their false teachings. And on top of it all, he says those American Lutherans, A, aren't doing anything about it. Um, B, they're powerless to do anything about it and see their doctrine is so bad that if they do actually get their hands on these German Lutherans, they're going to uh, corrupt them or, or lead them astray with, with false doctrines, especially uh, concerning the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. So he kind of, he's working within the Synod of the West uh, before he leaves without really being familiar with it, but he's he's sensing the, the disconnect. And then his famous appeal called the note roof, um, typically, is largely a response to the Synod of the West without really naming names. Um, mm -hmm. That's what it's about. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, and you kind of hinted at this already, but I mean, what a lot of your paper ends up exploring are these various points of tension within the Synod of the West. I mean, almost from the get-go. So you have kind of the geographical tension of Western Lutherans, and again, West meaning, uh, as you described it at the outset of the podcast, and kind of the Eastern Lutherans that it seems to me aren't really fully supporting them as much as they would like. And then you also have these linguistic divisions and between English speakers and German speakers, and especially this is being uh, becoming more of a problem as more and more German immigrants are coming in to the Western states. And then Obviously, you have the theological divisions as well, and this these are central tensions to the Synod of the West from, well, yeah, again, almost from the beginning, yeah. too. So, I don't know, do you want to say how these divisions kind of shape the Synod of the West's brief history? Well, and I want to give, you know, historical credit where, where it's due. The, those men of the Synod of the West, they were hardworking men. Uh, obviously, if you're preaching 175 times a year, which... Yeah. Okay, there are only 52 Sundays in the year. Let's just make that clear. Plus your, your holidays, if they're doing that, maybe 60 times. That's so over, well over double, kind of almost triple the amount of times preaching. They are working very, very hard, most of them. So I don't want to, to fault those individuals. They are aware of the issues. Um, 
I, and a, a phrase I, I worked into the paper was the impotence yielded apathy. After a while of just saying we are powerless to uh, serve everyone ourselves, I guess we, we, we can't lose sleep over it. We've got more than enough work to do. Uh, we can't learn German while we're doing all this work. And we don't know any other German people about it. The, the thing that, uh, the tricky thing is the, the doctrine where they viewed, they already had their American Lutheran doctrinal viewpoint. Um, they were very, at these early 1830s, still even early 1840s, very respectful by and large of the General Synod. They were General Synod people. They joined the General Synod as pretty early on. Uh, they liked the Lutheran Observer. They officially in endorsed the Lutheran Observer. Um, they liked Samuel Simon Schmucker. So, you know, Freck was a personal friend. So the doctrinal differences, they were, that was one area they weren't really willing to talk about uh, or make any self-examination over. Um, when in, in my other interview that we did on the Lutherische Kirchenzeitung, as soon as they, the, the doctrinal issue between the the confessional Lutheran view and the American Lutheran view came out in the press, they instantly, without even examining it, said, the Lutheran observer is the paper of the church, they said, and anyone else is just causing divisions. So don't read it. it was basic, don't don't read the Lutherische Kirchenzeitung. They kind of blacklisted Schmidt and, and his paper uh, for being confessional. So they really uh, tuned out any doctrinal conversation, at least on the official level. And then when Winnikin comes back, um, through his personal efforts, the Fort Wayne area had, and really northern Indiana and, and, and southern Michigan, uh, he was faithfully serving and organizing dozen, a dozen congregations or so. And he was writing letters to Europe saying, hey, can you send me this guy? Or, hey, you and I went to college, university together. Can you come over? I have a spot for you. He was kind of working as his own his own little circuit without really officially having that authority, but he was working directly with Europe to fill these German congregations with German pastors. So suddenly uh, 1843 comes around, he's back from Europe. He has a couple allies now. Um, and the Synod of the West is made up of many more German congregations and pastors. And it's interesting, they have a Synod meeting, they have some discussions. It doesn't get too heated, but you can tell there's a difference because Winnikin goes off with his German guys and they sing a mighty fortresses are God in German. And the American Lutherans are left in the other building just saying, well, isn't that cute? Is basically what they say. Well, isn't that nice? Those Germans are homesick and they're singing in German. Uh, then a year later, it, it all kind of falls apart where um, Ezra Keller wants to start a new seminary and it's not going to be confessional. And Winnikin says, we cannot cooperate with this. It's un-Lutheran. It's un-Christian because of its heresies it's espousing. And it turns out that there are enough German people there on the first day of the conference to vote down the seminary proposal. But then as people are, you know, riding in on horseback, oh, sorry, there's too much mud in the road, or, you know, the, the, the bridge was out. Um, the, the Americans, as they're called by contemporaries, show up. And then they overrule the German, the German Lutheran decision at the Senate convention. So it's just chaos where it's clearly divided. Uh, and then they they realize we're not going to be able to work together. They never say it, but then I think it's just it's just assumed this project of working together isn't going to happen. And something that I hadn't never put together before until I read it in your paper was it's at the convention where they're debating these issues, the Senate of the West that Winnegan first encounters 
uh, the or the Missouri, or, well, it's not the Missouri Synod quite yet, the yeah. uh, paper founded by CFW Walther, which eventually become the chief paper of the Missouri Synod. Um, at least, you know, that's the, that's the, uh, is that in the biography of Vinikin where this it's, is made? You know, maybe that's another one of those stories that's too good to be true. I don't know what you think, but. That actually, when my Winnikin study, that, 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 that event was something I took a lot of time trying to nail down. And I had a throw, there are conflicting accounts as to when he first got his hands on Der Lutheraner. Um, one person makes it seem like he first got a copy from Wilhelm Seeler in 1845 um, when he was visiting him for the first time. Um, his daughter, Emma, writing a hundred years after the event said, oh, he first read it in Baltimore later in the 1840s. I Contextual evidence rules that out. She's just not remembering it, right? She wasn't even born yet at the time. What the immediate context says, um, Adam Ernst, who was a Wilhelm Lea sendling, uh, a missionary, mm-hmm. uh, apparently um, connected Winnikin with Dare Lutheraner, because already they were starting to realize we're not going to be able to make this work probably with these American Lutherans. We should be seeing where the other confessional German Lutherans are in the country. So this this would have been in the fall of 1844, so just a couple months after that very first issue of Dare Lutheraner. Um, but apparently, uh, Winnikin, when he first saw it, said, uh, thank God there are still even more real Lutherans in the country. He was just um, at this kind of difficult point encouraged by the fact um, there are other people who thought pretty much just like him yeah and, and the rest of the people yeah that's that that was a that was a neat anecdote um I guess the final question on the paper itself is um I mean it's a great read uh, but you also get into some reasons why this short-lived synod uh the synod of the west it only lasts for 12 years uh why it its legacy is significant. I mean, there's a lot of these kind of short-lived uh, synods that spring up in the 19th century and then kind of fade away. Uh, why? Why is the synod of the West matter? Well, in, in a small in a small way, uh, and pretty much all these other short-lived synods can make this claim. Well, they fed into other more important, more famous synods, so their DNA somehow made it into to other synods. Um, they they hit the self-destruct button, and I couldn't really figure that out why they never there's no like in the minutes there's no record of this isn't working we should divide into three micro synods even though we're already pretty small they never say why and i think that part of it is um it's kind of that general synod assumption that each state will have its own synod and we're kind of like a federation kind of like the united states is made up of 50 states and we're governed that way um the american lutherans said we're going to have a general synod governed by these or built up of these smaller synods. So I think that's what was behind it, but there were obviously internal divisions. Um, But they fed into some even smaller synods that, I mean, there's barely anything to write about. There was the Synod of the Southwest, which again is not New Mexico or Arizona. No, that's in those days, Kentucky and Tennessee was the Synod of the Southwest. I don't even really know what happened to that, um, if they even met. Um, There was the new Synod of the West, which was basically Indiana, um, and then the Synod of Illinois. The synod of the new the new synod of the West. That's where most of those German confessional Lutherans were. And basically, in the very first meeting, they all just walked out and said, "Are we going to follow the Lutheran confessions or not?" No. Okay. Come on, guys. Let's go over here and found our own synod. So they founded the Indi- Indianapolis Synod, which eventually merged 
uh, not instantly, but took a while, uh, but merged with the Missouri Synod. Same can be said for the Illinois Synod. The Illinois Synod was definitely much more an American Lutheran Synod for a while, but then eventually the German confessional influence kind of took that over. And I think it's in 1875 or thereabout, it merged with the Missouri Synod. But within the Illinois Synod, there's an interesting legacy of uh, the Synod of the West correctly identified a need to have a Western seminary to train pastors for service in the Midwest. You just couldn't rely on the East Coast uh, to get it done. You have to have local seminaries, which was all fine and good. So they founded a seminary in Springfield. Um, Francis Springer uh, was a Synod of the West pastor, then later in the Synod of Illinois. He was, according to him, a neighbor and friend with Abraham Lincoln himself, and that's interesting for obvious reasons. Um, but that seminary in Springfield uh, went through a couple changes, and eventually that's the campus where Missouri Synod used for their theological seminary. So if not a direct descendant from the Synod of the West Seminary, at least the building and the idea of having a seminary there, um, there's a connection. Uh, but perhaps the greatest legacy is felt um, in the reaction to the Synod of the West's failures. So it provided contemporary confessional Lutherans with an open target for uh, attacking doctrinal weaknesses and heresies. It gave German immigrants, um, although they had several years of trying to make it work, uh, ample justification for going their own way because the American Lutherans weren't going to serve the German demographic uh, just as the tide of German immigration be began to swell. So it's kind of the perfect storm. They're not serving us. There's more of us. Their doctrine's bad anyway. We might as well found the Missouri Synod um, and other synods. Um, but it also fits in that broader American pattern of Western or Midwestern institutions becoming independent from the East Coast. And that fits in a broader American history. So a lot of, lot of good legacy, but you can see some tangible elements to this day. Yeah, and I mean, it strikes me. I mean, you asked me what, what I kind of thought of the significance of this before we started the podcast. And I mean, if I would sum it up, it, it's kind of almost a microcosm of so many of the different tensions in the antebellum United States and in the Lutheran church, you know, as, as we've talked about over the course of the last couple of minutes here, you know, you have the, the German immigrant versus uh, people who have traced their ancestry back several generations already in America. So if you will, the English versus German speaking element, you have the theological tensions and then in just even the geographical divisions. I mean, you pointed out very well that, you know, a lot of the divide in Lutheranism building up to the Civil War, I mean, there is Northern Southern tensions, but there's just as many East-West tensions uh, at least in the Lutheran Church, it seems to me, and and a lot of it too is, yeah, a lot of these Eastern Lutherans wanting to support Western expansion, if you will, and by again Western, we're meaning kind of the Midwest. But it, as I read the papers of of like the 1830s and 1840s, and eight, even early 1850s. You know, it's always there's always this kind of clamor like, oh, we need more pastors out here, but not as many people actually want to go out to the Midwest yeah. and leave kind of the comfortable confines of, uh, you know, Pennsylvania or. Or they go for a year, like a missionary tour, and then yeah. they get married and they say, 
I'm never doing that again. And if you send anyone else, don't make them try to be a missionary in five states on yeah. horseback. It's not going to work. Um, yeah. That was Ezra Keller's uh, approach. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and Ezra Keller is a great example of someone who, I mean, he only lives till he's, I mean, he dies in his late. I think it's, yeah, 1848 30s. is when he dies, I believe. Yeah. And he's, so I think he only lives to either his late thirties or early forties, if I'm not mistaken, but yeah, that's yeah, a tough, it's a tough uh, life uh, on the frontier. Um, well, cool. Let's, let's maybe move on to talking about how you went about researching this article. Um, well, maybe, maybe just back up even further. Where, where'd you kind of get the idea to start researching this article and, uh, what was kind of the impetus behind the project? Yeah. Well, I, as listeners are aware, I was working on just understanding, uh, Friedrich Finnegan's uh, theological development. He went from being a, conf- uh, an awakened Lutheran, um, which is more or less, I sincerely believe in Jesus to, and that's, I don't want to say good enough, but that's what his focus is, is just sincere faith to suddenly being very, um, this is what the true faith is. And the Lutheran confessions are completely correct in every way, uh, being a confessional Lutheran. And somewhere um, he goes from being probably in agreement with most American Lutherans, or at least he's able to work with them. He tolerates them and they tolerate him. Uh, they're friendly to being uh getting to the point where he shows up at a general synod convention and vows to wage war on them <laughs> and, and their and their heresies okay that doesn't happen overnight so how did he encounter american lutheranism in his own synod uh, the synod of the west so that's what started it and what started this project is apart from one not so great article that's now over a hundred years old from the concordia historical institute from the 1920s uh, there hasn't been any historiography, any history written on this synod. Um, so I thought, well, I should at least understand it if I'm going to understand how uh, this one man who was part of it for most of its existence, uh, Winnikin was even its treasurer for a couple of years. He was an officer in the synod. How, how, how did he interact with it? Um, so that's why I got got into trying to understand the synod. And then I understood, I started to see there's a lot of value to it, as you, as we mentioned. There, there are these themes of German versus English, of East versus West, um, Europe versus America, and confessional versus American Lutheranism, just a, a lot of good stuff in there. Um, the research process was, um, thankfully, almost all the synod minutes are available in English or in German. There's one year where it's just in German, but that's okay. Um, and the, art, the ELCA archives in the Chicago area had them all on PDF and just said, oh, here you go. It was one of the easiest research projects I ever did was nice. uh, they had all the minutes available, which is always a blessing. And then just looking at um, Winnikin's other writings and, and the writings of contemporaries, uh, Ezra Keller's biography um, has uh, the guy who transcribed his journal who wrote his biography. He misspelled Winnikin's name. So it took me a while to realize, oh, that's actually Winnikin. He didn't mm-hmm. get it right, um, but there's no other way it's anyone else just based on context. Uh, so that was one little challenge in the research, but by and large, there were published or at least available sources. Yeah, and the minutes of the Synod of the West, I mean, that makes up a, a large portion of the the sources that you cite. I don't know, do you have any thoughts on the strengths of this type of source, the published minutes of 
uh, published synodical minutes and and the weaknesses of that as a source. I mean, there's a lot of really interesting stuff in there, but there's also limitations. I don't know. What what do you do? You have any thoughts on that? Well, there's de- there's definitely weaknesses. Um, depending on who the secretary is, I would make a very bad. Sec- just anyone listening, don't elect me as your secretary. I'm going to do the. I was always the student in class who thought if I could turn this two sentence answer into one word, that's what I will do. Um, and I think sometimes they don't put as much detail in there. Um, but it's almost like it's an editorial sometimes where, oh, and you know, they were all happy and there's always this feeling of brotherly love, which is true and fine probably. Um, but sometimes it's definitely biased and it's recording discussions, but maybe not everything that was thought or maybe not everything that was said. And those are definitely the weaknesses of, of minutes, but at least it gives you a framework. But you could tell there, there is something missing because there was no discussion on why are we destroying this synod that we built and wh- how do we feel about it? That wasn't there. So there's yeah. obviously something lacking and I couldn't find it in other other sources. Um, I can tell communication was a problem because Winnikin only found out that his synod self-destructed by reading about it in a newspaper. They didn't, he was the treasurer of the Senate at the time, and he he was uh, he was in Baltimore, so he didn't attend the meeting. But yeah, they didn't even say, "Hey, we're planning on doing this. What do you think?" Uh, so I thought that was interesting too. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I've noticed in my own research how you know often, and this comes later on than the than the time period you're researching, but in say the 1850s or 1860s, some of the various church papers will reprint will print their own version of the minutes that have a lot more of the re- discussion recorded you know I, I just random example and uh, i was looking at the 1868 uh general council convention the other day and this is where they're debating the four points which is this thing that's a hang up between the Ohio and Iowa synods and the general council. And in the the official published minutes of the general council, you have, you know, the resolutions that were passed and kind of just like who was on which committee and kind of the basic information. But then in the church papers in the Lutheran and missionary, they have uh, a transcription of like the debates, you know, so this theologian said this, and then this pastor said that, and, you know, back and forth like that. But for a lot of these, synods you're not gonna they're not important enough or or even at this time that you know the the amount of lutheran church papers out there isn't large enough to you know do that for all the different synod but it's interesting you can kind of fill in some of the gaps with with some of those sources sometimes yeah and the nice thing is so many and we're discussing about this earlier before we started the official podcast there's so many autobiographies of individuals or biographies or at least they had the journals or the letters and they just printed it or at least parts of it. Um, so if it's a big enough kind of meeting and there are important enough people showing up, you generally can get those different uh, perspectives on it. Uh, the stuff that the, the, the juicy stuff for these Synod of the West meetings, you get in Kirchliche Mitteilungen. and they're published in Germany uh, by yeah. Wilhelm Leia, but it's uh, Winnikin or Adam Ernst are writing their reports back to Leia. And then he's publishing it for a German audience to understand what's happening in, yeah. in you know, backwoods, Kentucky. And you get That's more details from that. Yeah. Um, yeah that is really interesting. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, you know, I guess this kind of, maybe you've answered it already, but I'll ask the question anyway. Was there anything that was particularly surprising to you as you encountered this project that you weren't, you know, expecting or uh, just particularly excited to find? I was my, one of the big, and this is in my entire Winnikin project, one of my, my happiest discoveries was uh, finding the Ezra Keller account of what happened. And he says, can you believe it? This Winnikin guy actually believes in the real presence in the Lord's yeah. Supper. And, you know, and, and he's clearly defining what Winnikin actually believes in 1844. And this is, uh, you know, and, and sometimes people kind of give, oh, Winnikin wasn't really that confessional until, you know, and they fill in the blank. Um, but no, he, he was very confessional at least by, by 1843, 1844. So it kind of dialed back the clock a bit on, on his doctrinal development. So personally for that subject, it was just amazing to hear a detailed description of what Winnikin believed as a criticism yeah. um, where I didn't get that from him himself. Uh, I never really got from Winnikin himself, his own uh, doctrinal transformation, but someone else was commenting on it. So Interesting. Cool. Yeah, that is cool. So um, you've got the article done, you've submitted it for publication. So, you know, it's done, right? Or, or do you still have any lingering questions that uh, you'd like to, you would have wished you could have figured out or maybe still some things that you wanna do with the Synod of the West or at least uh, other times that might come up in future projects? I think the appeal for doing this project was that it, it was, short-lived. It had nice bookends to it, and the sources were generally available. So I don't want to say I've done a complete exhaustive study on it. No one else can ever find anything interesting or relevant about it. Um, I'm sure people could take and really analyze the English versus German uh, parts of it, but I, I think I, I covered most of the significant bits and episodes of that in, in this paper. So personally, I, I think it, it's pretty complete. It is part of the mosaic of 19th century American Lutheranism. I think it is very helpful for understanding uh, the whole situation for a large part of the country. Um, but no, I, I think I'm, I'm personally done with this project for now. Cool. Um, so what's next for you then, Ben? What's, uh, what's, on, what's in the hopper coming down the line that you're working on right now? Well, I am still finishing up uh, that, that book chapter I talked about, about the communicating religion, looking at uh, really just the 1840s American uh, Lutheran publications and just how did people communicate and then debate religion in, in the open. I'm still working on that. Uh, but after that, I'll be taking probably a, a break from any new projects. Uh, I was just accepted into a, a program at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, where I'll be working toward um, getting a PhD. So instead of uh, finding new things to do, I think I'll wait and see what that all means for me as far as studies are concerned. You'll be doing what your professors uh, tell you to write. I'm about. under orders then, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that sounds good. And yeah, that's awesome that you're starting that soon. Uh, hopefully you can keep the, the podcast going uh, during your studies. Yeah, we'll see. Hopefully. All right. Well, I've I've enjoyed it, and I've enjoyed the uh, the conversation today. I enjoy listening to the the podcasts, and I hope the audience uh, sticks around and uh, keeps uh, keeps listening to more of these great episodes. Um, we were talking about some of the other guests you have coming on down the pike, and I'm excited to hear what they have to say. 
Um, I don't anything. You're the real host. I'm the fake host. Anything you want to get the, get the guest of honor host is yeah. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> anything you uh, want to say before we uh, sign off here? Yeah. Well, I'll just say to our listeners, thank you for uh, listening again. Hopefully you found this uh, interesting and, and please do check out uh, the research in uh, as it's published in the Concordia Historical Institute uh, uh, journal. If you are uh, interested in seeing the, the actual story with the, all the references and such. And uh, in another 15 days or so, please tune in again for another episode.